You are listening to the Adventures in Advising podcast with Colin Cronin and Matt Markin. Are you passionate about working with students and making a difference in their lives? Join us as we bring together and interview those in the global academic advising community to share knowledge, best practices, and their own advising stories. We thank you for checking out our podcast. Stay up to date and follow us on Facebook, Twitter, and Instagram at Advising Podcast. Now, without further ado, here's the episode. Hello and welcome to Adventures in Advising with me, Colm Cronin. And hey, greetings and salutations, Advising World. This is Matt Mark, and how are you? I hope all is well as you continue to finish up your new student orientations. How are things going with you, Colm? Things are pretty good here, Matt. Um, Ireland, I suppose, has been in a, a period of relative stability over the last few weeks. I think we're still a little uncertain around what exactly the, the next school year will look like, though we now have a date for the Leaving Cert results, which are our high school exam results, and they dictate when students, I suppose, go to university and where they go to university. Those will come out, though, on the 7th of September, uh, which is way later than they usually would. And it means that for some students, there might be only a week or so before they actually have to begin their orientation programs. So that is definitely going to be a challenge for those students in terms of settling into their institutions, potentially finding accommodation, because over here there is limited campus accommodation, certainly in comparison to universities in the United States. Uh, I would say the vast majority of Irish students live off campus and they tend to live in either rented houses or maybe with host families in what we call digs. And I think that's going to be a little more challenging to, to get this year. And I think for staff as, as well to try and put that program together and to ensure students feel really welcome with such a short turnaround will will be challenging. In my own institution, our new president is in situ and he took over just a few days ago and his, I suppose, inauguration speech was really welcoming, really buoyant, recognizing the challenges that we all face. But I I think setting out a really good plan and roadmap for where he wants to take the institution, he has a 10-year term and he really has a vision. So I'm pretty excited on, on that front to see where DCU is going to go over the the next few years. And what about you? Nice. Yeah, we still have a couple more weeks of our new student orientations and we move into our college weeks in the first two weeks of August. Uh, we just found out that some of our classes will be on campus for the fall, but it's really just a handful of classes. So uh, more labs for sciences, some theater arts, uh, music classes, but not too many. Um, these are usually uh, probably courses that um, really max seating is probably like 15 to 20 students anyway in the class, so um, or less than that. So 
probably easily able to do the social distancing and all of that good stuff. But uh, for all the other classes, we will still be virtual. But uh, the first couple of weeks of August will be our college weeks. We're inviting our incoming students to attend in what else kind of format but Zoom and get presentations from their major faculty and professional advisors before they start up towards the end of August with our fall semester. But it's funny because like now that fall is about to start, the question that seems to keep coming up now through emails and appointments is, well, what's going to happen with spring semester of 2021? Is that going to be online as well? And I'm like, well, we haven't even started fall yet. So, you know, we'll get to that decision at some point. But, you know, let's make sure everyone's good and good in the fall first before we, we get to get to spring. But I know we got a jam-packed episode today. So um, let's talk about that. I mean, this episode is really all dedicated about graduate students and how that topic come about. It came about through one of our interviewees, uh, Martin McAndrew. And Martin is somebody who I had worked with at Trinity College back when I I was in Trinity, which wasn't that long ago, but because I, I've, I've been to a, a, a couple of institutions in the interim, seems that a bit longer ago. And he had reached out to me on LinkedIn and said that he works his role at trinity is with graduate or as they're referred to in ireland postgraduate students and he was wondering were other people working in similar roles or how they approached that area uh, and that cohort of, of students and were there particular things that they look to do, the differences maybe in supporting grad students and undergrad students. And so that got us thinking and uh, you and I had a chat about who else we we might approach. And I had an idea for somebody I had worked with at University College Dublin, the very wonderful Neve Nestor. And then you had your thinking cap on as well. And who else are we going to talk to? Well, not just my thinking cap. Um, that all goes thanks. Well, first, thanks to Martin for the topic. And then uh, we'll get to your interview in a little bit, Martin. And also thanks to Leah Paganibon, who um, also suggested um, this other person that, that we could interview. And that will be the first interview coming up. And that's with Jamie Reynolds-Heck from University of Cincinnati. And Jamie is the current Nakata Advising Community Chair on graduate and professional students. So I was like, wow, that's a no brainer. Let's, let's ask Jamie to be part of this. And Jamie was awesome. I remember reaching out to her and about the podcast and with no hesitation, she was like, absolutely. I love talking about graduate students and working with them. Let's do it. So let's get right into that first interview. So here we go in three, two, and one. So our first guest up is Jamie Reynolds-Heck. And before going into Jamie's bio, just want to give a shout out to Leah Paganibon from Washington State. When Colm and I were talking about having a topic on graduate students, we were talking about who could we ask to be on the, the podcast. And then I was talking with Leah uh, during one of our meetings, and she had asked, hey, so what's going on with the podcast? What kind of topics do you have coming up? And I was telling her, oh, we have the graduate, we're doing gra one on graduate students. And she's like, have you talked to Jamie? She'll be the perfect person to be on the podcast. I was like, 
nope, but I'm going to contact her now. And it, it all worked out. So Jamie Reynolds Heck is the Director of Academic Affairs and the College of Nursing at the University of Cincinnati. She has worked in the College of Nursing for nearly 11 years. She has held the positions of Academic Advisor, Program Coordinator, and Assistant Associate Director of Graduate Programs in addition to her current position. During her time at the University of Cincinnati, her primary responsibility was to support graduate students from the time of application through graduation. In August 2018, she transitioned to her current role of Director of Academic Affairs. In this role, she partners with faculty and staff members on areas such as course scheduling, faculty assignments, clinical coordination, and administrative reporting. Jamie has been a member of Nakata since 2004. During this time, she has written book reviews for the Nakata Journal, contributed to a published article within the Nakata Journal, and presented at both regional and national Nakata conferences. In 2018, she was elected as the Nakata Region 5 Liaison for Ohio. She has also served as a mentor in the Region 5 Mentoring Program. And since 2019, Jamie was elected as the Advising Community Chair on Graduate and Professional Students. She also serves as a leader within the graduate and professional student advisors community at the University of Cincinnati. During her career, Jamie has completely immersed herself in learning about the needs and experiences of graduate and professional students. She strives to serve as a voice and advocate for graduate and professional students and persons who support them during their journey. She is dedicated to fostering a sense of belonging and connectedness for graduate and professional students within our campus communities and will positively impact their overall student experience. Jamie, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. We're delighted to to have you. And I think Leo was spot on in terms of the right person to talk to because that bio is absolutely stellar. And I think we are going to have plenty to delve into over the the next little while. Um, I suppose, um, Jamie, the a, a good starting point um, in all of this might be to give listeners an opportunity to hear how you got involved with advising to begin with. Absolutely. So my academic journey actually started at Northern Kentucky University, where I earned a Bachelor of um, Arts and English. And at the time of graduation, I was still uncertain of career goals. So I took a year to reflect. And during that year, I worked in insurance as an underwriter. At the conclusion of that year, I decided that the area that I would love to focus on was training and development um, at the corporate level. So I enrolled in a graduate program at Xavier University in Cincinnati, Ohio. And um, it was human resource development, basically training and development. And during that time, I worked as a graduate assistant in their Center for Career and Leadership Development. That is really where I realized that my passion was truly working within higher education compared to corporate. So at that point, I decided to explore alternate opportunities, educational opportunities, um, to uh, gather the experience that I would need to work Um, in higher education. I was still a little uncertain of which specific area uh, would be the best fit for me. But during um, that time, my supervisor had um, encouraged me to consider Kent State University, um, their higher education program. Uh, She was a graduate. And I applied. I had an assistantship 
um, in academic advising. And that decision to apply to Kent State University and work as an academic advisor in um, the college education really was a pivotal turning point for me, both professionally and and academically. Um, Since that point, I have worked as an academic advisor um, with undergraduate and graduate students. I started off, uh, as I mentioned, in education and then transitioned to undeclared or exploratory students and then nursing students. Um, However, in 2010, as I was working at the University of Cincinnati with our nursing students, an opportunity became available to work specifically with graduate students in our online programs. They had seen an immense increase in their enrollment, and they were looking to um, support the students in a more streamlined fashion from admission to graduation. And I was looking for Um, a challenge. I wanted to put myself in a position to diversify the populations to which I had previously served. And so I jumped on the opportunity to work graduate online learners, and I haven't turned back. I definitely have to say that graduate students um, are a source of passion for me and um, something that I hope to continue to add to their to provide a voice for them and advocate for them moving forward. I mean, literally working with the graduate students, you're working from the very beginning as your prospective trying to get into a program all the way until, until they graduate. And you've had various roles as an academic advisor, as we read in your bio, a program coordinator, assistant director, associate director of graduate programs. So having worked with both um, undergraduates and graduates, um, I mean, of course, as advisors, a lot of it comes down to, you know, we care about the students and we want what's best for them and want to help them out. Is there any differences in advising an undergraduate student versus a graduate student? Well, the characteristics that I would associate with uh, graduate students are that they are typically highly motivated. They have a lot of experiences, both within higher education as well as personally and professionally, which definitely impact their perspective. Um, They have a lot to offer within the classroom setting. Sometimes their prior academic endeavors are different than what they uh, will experience during their graduate program. So for example, they might have experienced um, an undergraduate program and they have a set of expectations from that experience. And when the graduate program, it's a little bit different. With that said, um, graduate students are typically um, managing a variety of responsibilities outside of the classroom. So those responsibilities could include taking care of family members, whether it be significant others, children, um, aging relatives. Um, They might be working, volunteering. And the one thing that I do have to say is that graduate students, they are so um, they desire to persevere and they try to work through all of these competing priorities to be successful, both within the classroom and outside of the classroom. And sometimes that desire to persevere can result in challenging situations and difficult decisions for them. For me, the most significant difference in advising undergraduate students versus graduate students is the role of the graduate advisor. Um, not to say that an undergraduate advisor might not experience um, a 
a situation where they're working with a faculty member as well as a student. But in my role as a graduate advisor, I really depended on that partnership with a faculty advisor and helping to support the educational and professional endeavors of um, my graduate student population. This partnership with faculty advisors and graduate students uh, resulted in some of the most rewarding and fulfilling experiences of my professional career. Um, I, I also do have to say that, you know, in, in working with the members of the advising community on graduate and professional students, what I hear most from the members is the variation in their roles. So when we are in our advising community meetings at conferences, we go around the room and we talk about the roles and how we support our graduate students. And the responsibilities of our members can really cover a broad spectrum, which could include recruitment, admissions, um, academic advising, onboarding, retention, programming, um, Some people are conducting some alumni engagement, teaching, and budgeting. And all of these responsibilities uh, really impact the complexity of the role. And to say that an undergraduate advisor uh, might not be tasked with varying responsibilities by any means, but from my personal experience and in speaking with the members of our advising community, it definitely tends to be identified as a common characteristic of our graduate advisor roles. And... Jimmy, you, you talked, uh, I suppose, there around, you know, so, some of the differences with undergrads and, and um, postgrad students, as, as we refer to them uh, in, in an Ireland and UK context, and kind of some of the challenges. And one of the things that I have heard from some of our postgrad students, I suppose, is when they are coming back into higher education having been away for a little while and how how do you approach or, or, or would you have any advice for advisors about helping students to manage that transition back into education? Mm-hmm. I think that it's important to provide a supportive environment uh, while making sure that they have considered um, how they are going to put themselves in a position to be most successful. And what I may, mean by that is helping them through the reflection process of understanding what outside components need to potentially adjust for them to be successful within their uh, program and within the classroom setting. So I would encourage them to reflect on their personal responsibilities, their professional responsibilities, what extracurricular activities that they are engaging in, and how they're going to manage the workload and um, the tasks associated with their uh, program to be successful. Uh, I know that a lot of students are um, typically apprehensive about the utilization of technology if they've been outside of, of the classroom for a period of time. And this could occur with an undergraduate or a graduate student but encouraging them to um, look at the type of technology that they have to ensure that it meets the minimum requirements of the university. And we're talking about right now from a technology perspective, but really it's familiarizing yourself with the expectations of students at your respective university or within your respective program. And 
making sure that they are proactive and seeking out help if they have any type of question. Um, some people are hesitant to ask questions. So um, I, as an advisor, I try to create opportunities for them and outreach that will encourage responses as well. So they don't feel like, um, you know, they're reaching out to me and they're bothering me. That's by no means the situation at all. I want them to ask questions because I want them to be successful and I don't want them to assume anything. Now, in your current role as director, um, you partner with a lot of different individuals from staff and faculty, working with the students, you're doing the course scheduling piece, uh, faculty assignments, you're doing a lot of the coordination. I mean, we're recording this on June 3rd uh, for this to be posted in July. So a lot could change between now and then. But as of right now, with, with everything happening with, with, the, with the pandemic, where are things at right now with your institution for the upcoming academic year? Yeah, right now, the University of Cincinnati would love nothing more to emphatically say, yes, we will be back on campus for the fall semester. But at this point, um, the University of Cincinnati um, continues to examine um, the topic of returning to the campus. Um, they're looking at it from a variety of perspectives, gathering data and consulting with our medical experts um, through our uh, academic health center to really inform the decision making. Um, the information that we have received is that they are planning to make a final decision by the end of June as it relates to students returning to campus. Um, but they just want to ensure that students are returning um, to a safe, a healthy environment um, that promotes their overall well-being. Um, as it relates to faculty and staff, um, they have shared a multi-phase process in which they are planning to um, have faculty and staff return to campus um, during the upcoming weeks to months. Yeah, I, I think the par what's paramount is that that health and safety aspect, and I suppose we're all just waiting to see at, at the moment what way things are going to play out and how we as uh, advisors will adapt to those those challenges with the with the students. Yes, I, I completely agree. I, I appreciate the the thoughtfulness and the time and energy that they're putting forth in making a definitive answer. So with that, can you discuss like at University of Cincinnati or maybe other institutions that, that you know of or, or have talked with, with other advisors about with everything kind of many of the schools having everything online or virtual for their spring term and a lot of institutions, I mean, it's kind of hit and miss with, with this upcoming fall, whether you have some that are going to return back to campus Others that might have some hybrid version or um, others that might be fully online uh, for, for the fall term. But with the students, can you talk about any challenges or barriers that maybe some of the graduate students ha have been facing? And then I guess along with that, how has that impacted how advisors advise graduate students? Stay with us. We'll be right back. Cracking the college admissions code just got easier. I'm Rebecca Gordon, your go-to fictional college admissions counselor for the rich and famous. Tune into The Admissions Game, Satire Edition, and uncover my top secrets for sure-fire Ivy League admission. Ditch the old Photoshop your face onto a water polo hunk trick. We reveal all the latest loopholes. So laugh and learn with The Admissions Game wherever you podcast. 
Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. So for graduate students, um, they have been impacted tremendously by the pandemic. Um, as have undergraduate students. Um, Some of the challenges and barriers that I can identify for graduate students would be the concerns related to future funding, whether it be from a perspective of assistantships, um, students, healthcare, uh, research, travel, and then, of course, the um, costs of moving and storage uh, based on relocation requirements. of course, with our international students, there there's still um, some unknowns related to um, the global travel restrictions and travel bans, and then uh, the delays and difficulties in obtaining visas. So that can impact not only our current student population, but our new admits for the upcoming year as well. Um, the impact of employment um, can also impact. Uh, be an inf- uh, an influential component on our graduate students. And what I mean by that is, for example, speaking on behalf of nursing students, um, our nurses are trying to complete their coursework and meet their academic requirements while supporting the efforts of COVID-19. So a lot of them are trying to manage their professional responsibilities, um, their home life in which they might have uh, have children at home who had to be whose uh, educational endeavors transitioned to uh, home, and trying to balance so many different competing priorities. So I would say that for graduate students, um, we as advisors have to consider how we can best support the multiple roles and responsibilities of our graduate and professional students, um, and identify opportunities um, to bring a voice and advocate for graduate students. I think that one, if there is any type of positive in this situation of a pandemic, is that it has highlighted that we need to be a strong um, advocate for our students. and We have to adhere to that responsibility. Um, We have to ensure that their needs and experiences are shared and that they are included in all discussions as it relates to student support. Um, Graduate students cannot and should not be an afterthought. And unfortunately, in some institutions, that might just be the case um, that they've experienced up until this this point. Um, As a result of the pandemic, we um, were placed in a situation where, uh, as advisors, we had to try new things. So, for example, we might be utilizing technology that was always available but never utilized. And so with that said, we have to think about how we can optimize these situations to enhance the overall student experience moving forward. Jimmy, I I think that's exactly it is in terms of kind of centering the the students. Um, Now, one of the things you talked about there was the experience of the international students and some of the challenges that they're facing in this COVID-19 world and around visas and the uncertainty. But are there other challenges that international students in particular face at at a graduate level have you that you've come across? So for international students, I would say that some of the concerns uh, that I have become aware of through the organizations and communities uh, in which I am affiliated are um, the 
are related to mental health and isolation of our international students. And in some cases, our international students were able to return to their homeland, but in other situations, they were not. And their connectedness to others was um, very limited, um, which could really have a tremendous um, influence on their mental health. Uh, I think we as advisors are aware of um, some of the out, outreach that was warranted uh, to ensure that uh, all of our students, including our international students, felt a sense of support, a sense of belonging and connectedness, and knowing that there is someone who is concerned about them and in their well-being. I have a couple questions. Um, one, uh, one is related to students already in graduate programs, and one is uh, since you work, have worked with uh, students prospective students, um, that'll be another question. So let me ask the first one with uh, current students. So students uh, that are finishing up their grad programs, you know, there's, there's, they may have to be doing their comp exams. And I know when I was a student, and we were talking this about earlier before we started recording, like when I was a student, like it was such a rigid process, you know, you couldn't have anything except what um, the proctor gave you um, at, at the computer. All your belongings had to be at the front of the room. You couldn't have your cell phone. You had to request if you could get up to go on a break. Do you know how that's being done, let's say, at your institution or other institutions that, that you know of? Yeah. So colleagues have commonly shared that uh, written examinations um, were administered through uh, their learning management system. Um, and oral, oral examinations uh, were conducted virtually. Um, in some situations, uh, such as comp exams, where uh, the institution requires um, them to be proctored, they might have opted for um, a, an online proctoring service or um, some type of proctoring environment. Uh, that was administered remotely. Uh, for thesis and dissertation defenses, uh, I have uh, heard that many were um, administered remotely through tools such as Zoom and Microsoft Teams. And I think that, once again, an advantage, uh, if there's anything to glean from this situation, is that institutions are now considering the way in which um, Comprehensive exams and um, defenses are administered to determine if there is the opportunity for flexibility moving forward. Institutions put so much effort into providing flexibility, uh, whether it be with policies or deadlines, helps them support and promote student success at this point. And I hope we can continue to uh, review our um, approaches and our policies to ensure that we continue this momentum moving forward. And so students that are graduating, undergrads that are graduating with their bachelor's degree, um, I mainly work with undergrad students. And there's probably not going to be a right answer to this because every institution is is different. And this is such a, a new new time. But one of the questions that I know I've been getting and a lot of advisors have been getting is students that are interested in grad school. Um, a lot of institutions for the spring term switched uh, to have various grading options, uh, whether it's keeping the letter grade to having an option for credit, no credit, or pass or fail. So students that are interested in grad school and are asking us, like, 
is this going to impact us for grad school? How are grad schools, how might they look at the grading option that we choose? Is is there a way, something that we could, how we could answer that, answer that question for students? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I, I think you're totally correct. Um, it The approach that many colleges and universities use related to um, exploring grading options, such as pass-fail grading, um, definitely varied across the spectrum. Um, but the reason that, that it was examined by institutions is because they were looking at avenue to lessen the student's anxiety and uh, reduce the enormity of burden from a hit to their GPA. For students who are considering application to a graduate program or a professional program in the future, um, I would state that the implications of grading options can definitely vary by the institution, but for many graduate schools, um, they are examining and potentially changing their practices, although they might be at various stages of communicating these decisions to stakeholders. Um, There is evidence of an um, action by programs to adjust their admissions requirements um, or transition to more of what they refer to as like a holistic admission consideration in an effort to account for the significant disruption um, that occurred as a result of the pandemic. Uh, Holistic admissions review is really based on the idea that there isn't one singular piece of evidence uh, by which a student a student is determined to be motivated or academically prepared. So it really is um, a way to help universities consider a broad range of factors reflecting the applicant's academic readiness and the potential for success both within the program and then post-graduation in their profession. Uh, I would encourage undergraduate students to contact the institutions and graduate programs to which they are considering future application to determine what their current admissions requirements are, um, their admissions review process, and the impact of pass-fail grading options. Because as you mentioned, it could definitely vary by institution. But what I have observed um, from more of a general perspective is that institutions and programs are trying to be as flexible as possible while upholding the quality and the integrity of their programs and their admissions process. And holistic admissions is really a great opportunity to consider um, multiple uh, factors um, in the applicant's um, uh, background. So um, I am a strong proponent and I know our College of Nursing at the University of Cincinnati is a strong proponent of holistic review. Jamie, I might take you back a little bit. Matt mentioned in your bio that you've been involved with NACADA since 2004. And I suppose a couple of questions. One, how did you initially get involved with NACADA? And also, how has it benefited you professionally? Yeah, so I became involved in NACADA um, as uh, an employee at Kent State University at that time. The um, dean overseeing my college was a co-editor of the Nakata Journal, and he was very involved in Nakata, and uh, he provided a lot of support in becoming active with Nakata. So that's how I was introduced to the organization, and I can tell you that um, throughout my time within Nakata, I have 
really found that the amount of time and effort that you put into the organization, you'll reap the benefits of. So I can, I know it's so cliche, but I think that for me, Nakata really fills my bucket and really continues that passion that I have to support um, graduate and professional students, but also um, enhance academic advising overall at the University of Cincinnati. And one of your roles that that you have, because you have multiple roles, but one of them in Nakata is you're also the chair of the advising uh, graduate and professional students um, advising community. Can you talk about uh, within that advising community, uh, what are the goals of that community? And also, if if anyone's interested in getting involved with uh, graduate professional students, um, how could they get get more involved in that? Yeah, absolutely. So um, when I assumed the role of... Um, advising community chair um, at the last conference, uh, the first thing that I did was I wanted to gather a pulse of what the needs were of our advising community members. So I administered a survey. Based on that survey um, and the feedback that was received, um, that really helped to inform the goals that were set for this upcoming year. So uh, one of um, the goals that was identified was really uh, focusing on the engagement and sharing of ideas among our community members. Um, a lot of people were looking for um, different ideas to support their graduate students. And as a result of that, uh, we uh, have developed a monthly newsletter that uh provides uh, our community members information related to um, articles focusing on graduate students. Uh, We do a member highlight. Um, Information is provided on a professional outside organization or community, and uh, we share different events. Um, We also have um, become very active within our Facebook community. So we do post uh, at least daily, if not more, and that is really an opportunity to share that uh, the information um, that is uh, being disseminated in the news or in articles related to graduate and professional students. Uh, there are so many times that you, we as graduate um, and professional advisors feel that um, graduate students might be overlooked or know they're not um, being included in decision making, but there are a lot of great things occurring within graduate education. You just have to, you just have to look for it. And so um, I think that uh, um, the goal that we have of engagement and sharing of ideas is really uh, bringing uh, light to uh, graduate and professional students, but also helping others to enhance the support that they're providing their populations. Um, Another thing that I would speak to is uh, professional development. Um, Some of the feedback that we received during the survey was the desire for professional development, specifically focused on uh, graduate and professional students. So we did implement a um, meeting series, an online meeting series entitled GPS Talks. GPS stands for Graduate and Professional Students. And that is, as I mentioned, an online meeting series that is administered three times per year. It's in March, June, and September. And so the topics vary uh, by um, meeting. But for example, the June um, 
session is on Tuesday, June 16th from 1 to 2 p.m. That's Eastern Time. And it is entitled Step 1 Onboarding. And so I would encourage anyone who is looking um, to um, discuss uh, graduate and professional students to uh, attend that session. If they are not able to attend that session in person, we do record all sessions and post it on our website. We have really um, taken a lot of time to enhance our uh, website, our community uh, website, and it has been um, really exciting to see the traffic um, that has uh, been brought to the website uh, and people utilizing the resources that are provided. Lastly, related to um, goals, I wanted to provide um, an opportunity for people to get involved. And we do have a steering committee associated with our advising community. So um, there were members who um, uh, volunteered to serve on the steering committee, and they are really helping to uh, fuel the momentum of this organization. And hopefully we are developing and sustaining um, effective advising community leadership moving forward. All of these efforts are contributing to the desire to bring awareness and a voice to our graduate and professional students and those who support them within NACADA and throughout our respective institutions. If anyone is interested in becoming involved um, or has any feedback related to graduate and professional students, they can use, uh, they can contact me as a point of reference. Uh, but so much information, as I mentioned, is on our community webpage um, on Nakata's website, as well as on our Facebook page. Yeah, and I got to take a look at, at that webpage, and I was pretty excited to see the, the GPS series on there. So a lot of great information. And as we uh, draw towards the Towards the end of this interview, um, and since we're still on the topic of Nakata, I was wondering if, if one, you could share maybe if you have any Nakata memories that, that you like to talk about, and maybe one of those might be um, about this uh, presentation that, that I found on the internet that you did called Graduate Students Deserve Love Too, creating a purposeful framework to support the overall graduate student experience. Yes. So that uh, presentation was uh, presented at an annual Nakata conference, and it was based on supporting our graduate students um, from the time of admissions um, through graduation. And what we had built um, at the University of Cincinnati College of Nursing is a web-based platform in which all of our information and communication um, filtered through. So we made sure that rather than um, students receiving sporadic emails that were disconnected, uh, we examined their entire academic experience to make it um, much more purposeful and disseminating the information, especially within the College of Nursing. Now, I'm, they will be receiving information, of course, from across campus, but we wanted to make sure that the messaging that we were sending uh, was consistent and thorough. And uh, it has been a platform that we have um, continued to enhance throughout the um, throughout the years, and it's something that we take a lot of pride in. Um, in addition, um, that Nakata 
conference session was probably one of the best memories I have um, presenting. It was one of the um, only times that I've presented at a conference alone. And um, it made me um, realize that um, there are so many people out there that have a similar passion as I do. There are so many people who are concerned about the needs and experiences of um, graduate students and want to create um, an inclusive environment for them. And just making sure that they're a part of the conversation and a part of the decision-making at the uh, institutional level. So it was really exciting to see the amount of support and encouragement shared within that room that day um, during that session. Um, if I had to identify another memory that really kind of hits home for me, it would be um, the experience that I have had as the um, advising community um, chair. Uh, I know it's been a short time, just less than a year, but you know, working with um, the steering committee um, and working with the community members who are in positions where they're trying to figure out how to navigate um, their institutional um, culture and, you know, politics possibly, and uh, best support their students. It's very motivating and inspiring to see the progress that um, our community members are making throughout the nation and beyond. Jamie, you said at the beginning of the interview that your passion was for supporting uh, graduate students and to act as an advocate and a voice for them. And I think that shines through. Uh, They can be very proud and happy that they have a champion who will uh, go to bat for them, as, uh, as we say. So I want to say thanks for taking the time to join with Matt and I uh, today. It has been really interesting to hear some of the projects, the initiatives that you've undertaken, and some of the, I suppose, resources that people who are interested in uh, the topic can access. And the way in which you have gone about it, I think, is quite inspirational. So thank you very much for taking the time to speak to us. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure. Really interesting interview with Jamie there and thanks to her for taking the time to chat to us and thanks to the good friend of the show, Leah, for once again, um, you know, giving us such good advice on who to to speak to. We we appreciate that. And, you know, as we, we mentioned earlier, this idea came about because Martin reached out to us. So if you do have an idea for the show, please do get in touch and Matt and I will look to see what we might be able to do. But we do have a couple of more great interviews coming up. And the first of those is with Neve Nestor. Neve works as a student advisor at UCD and was a colleague of mine for a couple of years when I was there. And she implemented a number of really interesting ideas. And I'm really glad that we got the opportunity to hear about those. And so let's share that with listeners right now. (laughs) 
All right. So let's welcome our next guest, Neve Nestor. Dr. Neve Nestor has been the student advisor at the UCD yep. School of Veterinary Medicine since 2014, where she supports undergraduate veterinary medicine and veterinary nursing students, graduate entry veterinary medicine students, and postgraduate students based in the veterinary hospital and building. The UCD Student Advisory Service is a point of contact, support, and referral for all UCD students throughout their studies. The student advisors can assist students in finding pathways to deal with personal, social, and emotional issues and can advise on appropriate UCD policies, procedures, and services. Neve loves working in student support and enjoys working at UCD. She is also interested in all things linguistic and has a particular research interest in the expression of identity through language. She completed her PhD in sociolinguistics at UCD in 2014. In her spare time, Neve loves to play piano, walk and garden, but her passion lies in crafting, and she especially loves to knit. At UCD, Neve and her colleague co-run UCD Pearl Jam, UCD's craft creative group, which is open to students, staff, and alumni, and which recently won a UCD Values in Action Award. When she gets the opportunity, Neve likes to travel back to Poland, where she lived for five years. Her lifelong dream is to learn enough about car mechanics to be able to fix her own. Neve, <laughs> welcome to the podcast. Thank you. <laughs> and, and and once you do learn for the car mechanics, I'll I'll be asking you if you can help fix mine if oh. I ever need it. Yeah, listen, it's the dream, the dream, the dream. I keep threatening to do something about it, but um, haven't done anything yet, but I will, I will. <laughs> well, I know why you haven't. It's because of how busy you always are, Dr. Nestor, because we were former colleagues when I worked at UCD, and I know just how many different projects you juggle. So I'm delighted that we have you on the podcast and we're getting the opportunity to speak to you about your work, supporting students, and especially for this episode, supporting postgrad students. So how are you and how are things at UCD in this COVID-19 world? Stay with us. We'll be right back. You love listening to podcasts, but have you ever thought about starting your own podcast? Maybe you want to build a brand, grow your business, or are looking for an excuse to talk about your favorite hobby. Whatever your reason for making a podcast, Buzzsprout is the place to start. Since 2009, Buzzsprout has helped over 300,000 people launch their own podcasts. Buzzsprout walks you step-by-step -step through the whole process and will give you powerful tools to start, grow, and monetize your podcast. Ready to get started? Click the link in the show notes to get our free step-by-step -step guide to starting your podcast today. Yeah, like I'm I'm good. It's been um I sort of sometimes look back on March and it seems like we and I know lots of people have this experience. We feel it feels like we're in a completely different reality. Um the time has flown by as well. Uh so that's been quite interesting. Um I really can't believe that the transition has been, uh, I suppose, as smooth in some ways uh, as it has been. Um, if I, if you'd asked me a year ago if this would have been possible, I probably would have said no. Um, but it's amazing, I think, uh, what you can do when you have to. 
and when your back is a bit to the wall. So, yeah, things are going OK. Um, students have transitioned pretty well themselves to, I mean, obviously, I think having to maybe suddenly start studying from home or having to move home, um, not having the structure of college, lectures, practicals, access to the library, all of those things that I think all of us take for granted, that's presented certain obstacles. So a lot of work that I think the advisors have been doing has been focused on helping students and supporting them to manage that transition for themselves. Um, and of course, then because of the pandemic, um, people have had family members that have become ill and very sadly um, passed away in some cases. So there's been, um, you know, we've been trying to support students with all of those additional um, uh, burdens that they've been trying to bear. Um, but yeah, it's uh, it's been a real learning experience, actually. And certainly for me, um, has made me look at the things I take for granted. And uh, I think I will come out of this um, a different person, actually, and uh, a little bit more grateful for, for the things that I have. Yeah, that's definitely a great point. Because um, I know, like, for a lot of us, when, when it started, it was just almost seemed kind of like out of nowhere in a way. Um, and then we had to just make these drastic changes. And, you know, then for some of us, including me, it, it took a little while to kind of get into the the new normal, I guess, would be the best way to put it that I can think of in terms of, you know, for us, we we're working remotely and then trying to still meet our students' needs. And then, you know, Zoom became the big thing. Yes. Um, and then, and then, you know, and at least for us, we're more than likely going to be continuing to be virtual uh, for sure for this summer, um, which our summer session, uh, we're recording this on June 10th, this episode being posted more than likely in July. So a lot could change between now and then. Yeah. But for summer, we're going to be online, fall more than likely online. Is there an update, as, as far as you know, uh, from your institution of how uh, the upcoming term is going to be looking? Uh, nothing um, absolutely concrete, Matt, as of yet. I mean, it's looking obviously like um, a blended learning approach. There's a little, a slightly delayed start in September, just by a, a couple of weeks, actually, for incoming first year students. Um, I, uh, the date, I think, is the 14th of September. And then all other continuing students return the following week. So that means then at the other end of the trimester, the exam period is shortened slightly and the advice from teaching and learning people in UCD is that exams would be more so open book continuous assessment things like that just to um, obviously to, to take cognizance of where we're at in terms of students having to do a lot of stuff online um, but uh, yeah I think then what's going to happen obviously is I imagine um, school by school will make things clearer for their own students so um, I think we're just waiting for a bit more guidance on that and, and just like you said things are so rapidly changing that um you know it's very hard to think for universities to take that into consideration as well and try to forward plan with that knowledge so yeah i think people are doing a lot of work behind the scenes though and they're doing their best yeah mm -hmm. and either way actually you know we're really looking forward to seeing the students again and to having students back on campus whenever that is and we're looking forward to meeting our new students even if that's virtually for a while i think you know the same amount of planning is going in to make sure that orientation for those students is as good as it always would be and that we um, get to build those communities that are so important to students to help them to settle into their new programs. I think that's exactly it Neve. it's it's around supporting the students and helping them to to build those communities and obviously the incoming students say that the first year undergrads and also the postgrads who are new to the institution that's definitely going to be a big part of the 
new semester for all of us. But maybe before we, we delve into some of that stuff, I have the good fortune of knowing you reasonably well and having worked with you and you helped uh, me when I first moved into to UCD. But for listeners who maybe only get got to know you when Matt read your impressive bio, could you let us know how how you got into advising i'm laughing at the use of the word impressive because like obviously you guys have redefined <laughs> redefined that word um thank you very much colum uh, yes colum and i know each other for quite a while now actually and um i had the pleasure of working with colum at ucd and i still miss him every day um and hopefully someday he'll come back and, and work with us again uh, would be great um so for me yeah my i think my pathway was pr- is probably not as clear-cut uh, as um as you might think um i but actually looking back over my experience over the last 10 or 15 years there really was a, a trajectory right throughout all the time I just probably didn't see it as clearly until it happened um, so when I uh, finished my degree um, which was in languages I went on to um, study linguistics um, and I was I'm very passionate about languages actually uh, I'm very interested in languages um, and so I, when I finished that, I worked for a little while and I had always wanted to learn a Slavic language. I had studied Romance language and Germanic, Romance languages and Germanic languages. Um, but I had this little bet with myself that um, I wondered if I could learn a Slavic language by throwing myself into the middle of the country and not preparing, not preparing for that experience, which sounds absolutely ludicrous. But in my defense, I was 25 and <laughs> relatively fearless at the time. Um, I don't know if I do it over, but anyway, um, so uh, I chose, I, I saw a sign one day on notice boards back in the day before the internet uh, advertising for teaching positions in Poland. So I followed up on that and um, found myself uh, arriving in northern Poland um, on a very sunny evening in uh, 2002. And this was before there were direct flights from Ireland into Pol- into northern Poland. So I... Um, also kind of wanted to understand, I suppose, maybe a little bit the migrant experience that other people would have. And uh, that became, you know, the foundations later of my PhD, really. Um, so I flew to London and then I got on a 24 hour bus, bus journey from London right through Europe to uh, northern Poland, which was very, very interesting because I didn't speak any Polish deliberately um, and everybody on the bus was Polish. So I actually literally had not a clue <laughs> what was going on. Um, so I did question my life choices about midway through that journey. But anyway, um, arrived in Poland in 2002 and really, to be honest, actually never looked back. Um, I often think about how if I hadn't made those choices, I don't know, uh, my life would have been very different, I think, um, because I've had uh, a really just, it's been foundational in terms of actually the things I've gone on to do since then. So my plan initially was to stay in Poland for a year, learn the language and come back home. But uh, as all well laid plans, it didn't uh, go according to plan. And uh, I fell in love with the country, actually. Um, uh, didn't speak enough Polish really by any manner of means by the, by the end of the first year. So I decided to stay for a little while and then decided to stay again and again and again. And so I ended up staying in Poland for five years um, and learned Polish pretty well by the end of it. It was a long, hard slog uh, sometimes, but it was really enlightening in terms of actually being an adult language learner, um, which is tough, actually, for anyone who's learned a language as an adult. And um 
I had the good fortune as well when I was there to um, teach somebody who came from a minority language background. There is a um, language in northern Poland uh, that's called Kashubski. Um, and I decided that I wanted to do a little bit of research on that. Um, so I did some research, ended up writing up a paper with somebody in UCD on that research, um, presented it at a conference. Sorry, this is a very condensed version now of all this. Presented it at a conference back in Ireland in 2016 and happened to meet my old master's supervisor at the conference who asked me if I would have any interest in interest in working on a funded PhD on the Polish community in Ireland um, and by that point really I was looking to come back a little bit I missed home um, and I, I really wanted to I suppose come back and live in Ireland um, so I jumped at the chance obviously and uh, arrived back in Ireland in um, uh, sorry 2006 I meant to say not 2016 I arrived back in Ireland in 20, uh, 2007 and started my PhD on uh, the Polish community living in Ireland, so Polish migrant children and teenagers. And so um, during my time in uh, Poland, I had taught English as a second language in both private schools, in a secondary school and in a third level uh, education institution as well. And then as part of my PhD, I did a, quite a bit of lecturing. And really throughout all of that time, my great love really and my passion was with the interactions with students and supporting them and you know seeing those minor and major successes all the way along like you know if somebody comes to grips with a very difficult grammar point in English it was you know very exciting um, and also you know dealing with different things that students might have going on and trying to best support them to continue with their academic journey while recognizing um, that they have other obstacles that they might be facing let's say outside of the classroom and so when I finished my PhD, um, uh, an opportunity came up to work in the vet school as an advisor. And so I took the opportunity and just fell in love with the job and the place and have been there ever since, actually. Um, sorry, that's a very long winded way of getting to there. <laughs> but I hope that explains my background a little bit. Yeah, so I've worked there since 2014. And um, yeah, it's great. I, lo I love my job. It's, it's fabulous, actually. I feel very lucky. Oh no, I was hoping you you keep going. I was I was so entertained by this. So, <laughs> so I was like, I don't want the condensed version. <laughs> my parents, my parents were less entertained at the time, you know, when I you know took off on the bus. But um, there you go. Yeah, yeah. no mobile phone, nothing. Oh dear. Yeah. And then we were talking before yeah. we started recording uh, because we were talking about like your your interest in linguistics and then you know living in, in Poland for five years and and visiting there quite often and we're talking about you know the the articles that that you've written uh, kind of combining the two and just found that fascinating uh, but you're talking about you know working at, at UCD working in, in the vet school and I was uh, taking a look at the um, UCD uh, vet uh, vet website and for your ad advisor info um, there was a, a sentence in there or a part of it that, that read Neve is our student advisor in vets and no problem or query is too big or too small and if Neve doesn't know the answer she'll be able to find someone who does and so immediately that that, that strikes me as okay this is someone who is a problem solver this is someone who doesn't want to leave the students lost or have a question unanswered so my question for you is what is being an, uh, an advisor uh, to the vet students? What does that uh, mean to you? Um, I think for me, and, you know, I'm reminded, lucky to be reminded of this very often, actually. Um, for 
you know, the real joy that I take from my job is when, uh, you know, I see a student who might be struggling with whatever it might be. And it could be anything like you really from the big to, you know, the very tiny things. And um, first of all, I think it's a real privilege uh, to be part of what that student considers to be a circle of support for them. That circle could be tiny, might be just you, but at the very least, that knowledge that the student recognizes in the first instance, I might need a little bit of help with this. Who can I talk to? Okay, there's somebody there for me um, that's open to speaking to me. And then that they, you know, offer that trust that you are on their side, um, that you um, are going to help them to make you know, good decisions for themselves, um, or at the very very least, listen and try to be um, a support for them, uh, no matter what they're dealing with. And that really no issue is off the table that this is, you know, your office is a safe space where um, they can come and talk out what might be going on for them. And so it's a real, um, like, I I suppose I can't really put into words uh, how deeply I feel uh, how you know how deeply privileged I feel to actually be that trusted person for those students um so you know no two days are the same in the vet school so you never know what's coming at you like in turn you know it's it's if somebody asked me about a typical day I, I can't really tell them that but I actually enjoy that the changeable nature of the job but the one constant really is that feeling of um privilege of supporting these students and having them trust you you know, it's really precious, actually. Um, so, yeah, for me, that's that's the core of it, I think, really. And then, you know, when you see, like, we have students graduating this coming Monday on the 15th of June. And, like, I remember those students coming in the door on that first day and we greet them in our foyer um, and we give them, you know, a bag and a pack and a piece of fruit. And, you know, because often they'll have forgotten lunch and then, you know, in an hour they're starving, you know. So we've recognised these things over the years. And, um we give them a water bottle to indicate that we're have you know we're concerned about the environment and we direct them to their water you know fountain and you know little stuff like that so you start to kind of embed them into the culture of the building and I remember them coming in and just it's a very nerve-wracking thing to come into the building that first day and you can see the kind of the paleness and a bit of fear and all of that stuff and um and then you know you get to know them over the years and um and then they're uh, finishing up and conferring and moving on to the next chapter of their lives and um it's just such a it's such a joy really I mean I um I think very often it really frustrates me when I hear people describe this generation of students. And I've been talking about, I suppose, the 18 to 25 year olds. Like we also have like obviously mature students, postgraduate students. But, you know, this generation is classified as being the snowflake generation, which just really frustrates me because I just think these people are awesome. Like, you know, I mean, the future is bright and uh, we are lucky to to work with these students and to see that um, they are just so tough and good and um just so talented. Um, I just, I'm, I'm really impressed by them all the time. So it's really, it's a great job, actually. Neve, I am for, like, I have seen firsthand your commitment to students. I've seen you advocate for students. I think anyone listening will hear it in your voice, just what the the job means to you and, you know, how committed you are to, to student welfare and ensuring they make 
the best decision for them. And I know that alongside the work with, say, the individual students and supporting them along their journey, you've undertaken a number of different initiatives and projects during your time in the vet school. And I think it might be interesting if you could talk us through some of those, because I know you've you've really done a lot of work and sometimes on your own, sometimes in collaboration with others, but it's always been to support students in different ways. Um, Yeah, so like, I mean, we have the good fortune, I think, as advisors in UCD to have a certain level of autonomy. Um, You know, if you recognise that there is some sort of uh, gap in student support or something that might help, or if a student approaches you and says, hey, listen, I have this idea, you know, we have a lot of flexibility to actually try to put in place those things that might support students that little bit more. Um, So... Yeah, there's really there's so much in this area that I think is possible. And I'm actually always I always look around, you know, if I'm at conferences and stuff and I hear about things people are doing and I'm like, oh, my God, why did I not think of that? Because people have such amazing ideas. Actually, it's really fabulous. But I'll give you a couple that we have found um, that work for us anyway in VET. Um, So around uh, around exams, um, a couple of years ago, I noticed that, you know, and I think this is a, a worldwide uh, experience, students are tired. Um, they can get a bit, you know, more tired as exams go on as well. You know, stuck in the library, they're not getting any time to themselves. And, you know, generally it's, you know, not not good physically or mentally, I think, for students to do exams. Um, so we're very lucky in the vet school in UCD that we have a library in the building. So our students tend to use that library quite a bit, obviously. Um, And uh, I noticed that often they might have an exam in the morning and then they might have a practical element to that exam in the afternoon. And so, you know, they come back, they might sit for a cup of tea in the the cafe uh, in our building and then they're back into the library again. And so this I didn't think this was ideal as a terms in terms of getting rest a little even 10 minutes to just shut your eyes and then prepare for your next exam. So we have a classroom beside our library um, that was being unused during the exam period. So I asked if I could turn it into a relaxation space for students. So uh, people were very enthusiastic about the idea. We converted the room. We were lucky that it's carpeted, which I know that sounds weird, but that's actually a little bit important (laughs) Um, because we put down a bunch of beanbags and yoga mats. And I think probably beanbags on a tiled floor mightn't be the same as beanbags on a carpeted floor. Um, Same with yoga mats, things like that. So we moved back the furniture. dimmed the lights, put in eight or nine beanbags, a couple of yoga mats, uh, pillows and blankets, um, and then put on some kind of soft meditation music and told the students about it and then let them off. And like literally, they absolutely love this room. They're very... um, um, not territorial it's probably the wrong word but they feel that it's it's their room it's their space um they're very protective of it they're also very um uh, careful of each other in the space so you can see them when they're about to go into the room they'll they'll peek in the door and if they see somebody in there who might just be sitting reading their phone or doing whatever um 
they'll tiptoe in quietly and take a space on the opposite side of the room. Um, sometimes they will go in there when there's no one else in there and maybe a couple of friends will go in and they'll sit around and they'll have a chat or, you know, whatever it might be. But they just love this space and um, they have often commented on how important it has been between exams for them to be able to use that space. So that's definitely easy to do, cheap uh doesn't take much work. All I do is every morning go in, give it a bit of a tidy and then put the room back together when exams are over. So it's very straightforward. Um, another thing we do is uh, at the we built a garden, built, sorry, we dug a piece of ground <laughs> and, and planted vegetables. We didn't do any building. Um, uh, so again, I was trying to, uh, I suppose, uh, reach out to students who for whom the traditional offerings of support whatever that might be the sport the music the drama things like that might not appeal um so i thought okay what are people into maybe gardening is an idea so we had a little green space again very luckily had a green space out the back had good support from people in the building and from estate services the people who managed the space and um we uh, planted some vegetables so the idea is that uh, you can go out do some weeding do some planting and then watch your plants grow and then it feeds into this idea as well that this is you know nutrition is important being out in the air is important touching the soil is important all of that kind of stuff so there is a kind of a, a bit of a theory behind it as well it's not just throwing a few pot- potatoes down in the ground um and then uh, when we when those vegetables grew last year last year was our first year we made them available to the community and um you could take whatever you wanted from the basket of fresh vegetables and make a donation to charity or not it was up to you but um so again there was um i suppose we were tying in there to that um support of your mental health of you know giving back and you know being you know generous with your time or whatever um let me see there's so many other things will i keep going keep going <laughs> keep going okay uh, we have a book swap area so our students work their final year for vet nurses and veterinary medicine and a good number of our postgrads uh, work in our veterinary hospital which is attached to our uh, school building um so in the evening like most places the place goes quiet the cafes are closed and uh, but the cafe space is open which has some very nice couches and things like that and people come there to heat up some food in the microwaves and spend a bit of time so we put in a book swap area and a games area with lots of different board games jigsaws packs of cards things like that if people want to take a little break and spend a bit of time uh, with other people um, or just reading a book whatever you want to do um, during the pandemic, uh, we were looking for ways to connect with students. And so we've just yesterday actually sent out our first issue of our school newsletter. <laughs> Very exciting. Um, so it's for students primarily, and the focus is primarily on well-being. So it's a very kind of light read um, about small things you might want to do to mind your well-being at this time. Um, and I suppose the main emphasis is on connecting. So the idea is we are connecting with you. We are still here. The building still is still standing. We're waiting for you to come back. Um, you know, you're not alone. Um, and so this just that we're trying to kind of, I suppose, deliver that message to students as well during the summer in particular when traditionally you know we wouldn't have much contact actually with undergrads in particular um and then after that let me see um we do this first year final year swap which actually is quite cool and it's been happening now for a couple of years um 
when final years confer and, and leave very often, uh, they would have bunches of stuff like, you know, stationery, um, wellies are very popular in the vet building, uh, scrubs, uh, vet books, which on average would cost maybe at least 40 euros up to 150 euros um, and different things like that. So I asked the final years if they would be willing to donate some of that stuff to us that they might be leaving behind. Um, and then I stored it in boxes over the summer and then made it available to the incoming first years, um, many of whom would have you know, travelled from a very long, far away to, to get here. You know, obviously that's a, quite a lot of expense. Um, so it was a way of trying to spare a little bit of expense for those students as well. So that's been very popular. The first years love it. The final years feel great because they feel like they're giving back and there's that like they're closing that circle and they're helping incoming students in the programme. And the first years feel like somebody's, you know, kind of thought about them and is looking after them and things like that. Um the books are extremely popular. So what we did was instead of just giving those out, we raffled them to all students for charity. So we usually pick a charity that the students are interested in for that particular year. And then um, you pay two euros. You can write your name on a, on a piece of paper and then your name goes into a draw for the book. And um, yeah, works really well. Yeah. <laughs> Sorry, just blathering. <laughs> no, that's like I said. I, like I, I can listen to you for hours. You know? <laughs> oh, you're very good. <laughs> Thank you. But no, like a lot of what you're saying, like it's it's a lot of it just goes full circle for the students. It, it, it benefits incoming students, current students. Um, people have that ability to feel like they're giving back um, to the school, to the community, and so it's just nice hearing about all these things and. Um, especially the wellness piece, because um, that's so important. And just to see like how much research has been put out there over recent years, because it, there's such a need for it. And I guess leading into that, you know, because of the pandemic, and, and this is, of course, a case-by-case -case thing uh, with students, but the postgrad students that, that you've um, advised over the last few months, have they, has there been any like concern or certain concerns that they've shared regarding the, the term that they were in? for spring or things that they might be thinking about or concerned about going into the upcoming term regarding their studies and how that's impacted with with everything that's going on? Yeah, I think um, the, the big themes that were coming out were things around, you know, submission dates, funding, continuing, uh, writing as well. So writing up any, for anybody who's in that part of their um, postgraduate to suddenly you know, not have access to a library in the same way, not have access to the community of your office that you might be in um, and to have a different kind of access to supervisory support as well. Obviously, it's all online. That was hard. So it's just you, the screen at home um, trying to write up. So uh, I think there's been a real struggle probably for a lot of students, um, postgraduate and undergraduate, about around motivation. And things like that, like that's come up quite a lot, actually. Um, yeah, so we have uh, some actually some really nice supports for uh, specifically directed at postgrads in the vet building. Um, we have a postgraduate representative who's they've always traditionally been very active. And our current postgraduate representative has been organizing regular coffee mornings for postgraduates. Um, and they're thematically organized uh, at the moment. So after I talk to you guys, I'm going off to bake some vegan 
banana muffins for our coffee morning tomorrow morning and the theme of which is baking so um you're invited to bring along your baked goods um i don't know what i'm going to do with 12 muffins i'll just have to eat them but uh so that's that's been really nice um one of the things we've learned is um that it's hard, as we all know, uh, to come into a Zoom meeting, for example, not not knowing anybody. So the idea, you know, we send out the link, the coffee morning happens, but it's very hard to click in and think, oh, my God, who are these people? So we're trying to do a little bit more work in the background on uh explaining you know who we are who might be there what might happen so that it it makes it a little bit more familiar for particularly new or postgraduate students or students who just may not have been fully embedded into the life of the building before the pandemic happened yeah um uh, i could talk a little bit as well about peer mentoring for postgraduates actually because we've piloted that program this year and one of the things we found is that it's been really helpful for students during the pandemic and um, that relationship has been very important between the mentee and their mentor um, and the mentor has been reaching out to student to, to their mentee and that that's really helped actually um, at this point. And Neve, I suppose what might be interesting because you work with both undergrad students and postgrad students do you see um, specific differences between those two cohorts and is there any difference in your approach to your work with the different cohorts yeah like there there definitely are differences I mean um you know I suppose for a postgraduate student uh you know when you come to your postgraduate studies of course you have experience of being in a third level institution before so you know you, you kind of know the lay of the land or pretty much you've had you've been through your undergraduate or your masters or whatever um but the postgrad is still uh, a whole other experience as a student it's, it has a very different face on it i think that you still have to learn about and 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 get to know um Postgrads as well, in my experience, very often have, you know, support networks that are quite well established, actually, outside of, um, say, the vet building in our case. So, um, you know, sometimes I find that when undergrads might come with a particular issue, particularly if it's very sensitive or very personal, they may not have told someone else about it or they may not feel able. Um, sometimes it's an age thing. Like, you know, I mean, I think you have to learn how to deal with crises, obviously, as, a, as a, an adult. Um, so you may be the, the only person they're telling. So part of my work is, I suppose, to try and find out if there may be somebody in their own lives that they're willing to reach out to depend on and so and so on and to, in order to establish what kind of appropriate supports they might need whereas a postgrad student very often has that person or those people that they may have been reaching out to which is i think um uh is is good to know about and, and good for them in those circumstances um the difference with postgrads as well, you know, and in terms of support networks, they also may have, you know, families, caring responsibilities. They have a different set of responsibilities very often to undergraduates. Um, the other thing as well is I think that there's a difference in, I suppose, the academic experience. So as a postgraduate, there's usually a 
quite a small number of people that you're accountable to, you know, your supervisor or your supervisors or or whatever it might be. And there's this big project very often you're trying to manage, which, which can be difficult um, as an experience. Whereas with the undergrads, you know, you have these chunks, really, even though, of course, you're achieving the big project, which is the degree or whatever it might be. But it's broken up into these handy little modules. You're examined and then on you go. You know, you're not often uh, as equipped to see the building blocks as they build up through your degree to, you know, to qualify you with this large piece of knowledge that is actually um, a particular field or whatever. Um, so, yeah, that can be um, quite difficult. And the writing process is very hard for some people. It's very difficult because in the end, it's you and the, for example, the PhD, the master's, whatever it is. That's a tough that's a tough place to be sometimes. So um, often I find we're talking a lot about motivation and and all of that and what helps. Absolutely. And to s- switch gears, can you talk to us about UCD Pearl Jam? Oh, yeah, Matt, of course. Yeah, one of my one of my core passions. Yes. Yeah, so um, I love to knit. Anybody who knows me um, knows my house is full of knitting wool <laughs> um, and needles. Um, and I, I really like craft and creative stuff more generally. Um, so a couple of years ago, myself and my colleague, Katrina, who's the advisor in science in UCD, were having a coffee. And we both had the same idea at the same time, which was that um, we thought there was a little gap in the support um, uh, offerings in UCD for students who might be into creative or craft type thing so there was the sports offerings music drama whatever whatever you want so we decided we would set up a craft group and um we applied for a little bit of funding and we were lucky to get that and so we opened up our craft group to staff and students and alumni um as matt read from the bio and um yeah we've been running since september 2017 The idea is that it's a space where you can come, bring whatever craft you're into. Most people do knitting and crochet. I suppose it's kind of easy to stick it in your bag in the morning coming into college. And, you know, um, but we've had people doing drawing, uh, paper crafts, all sorts of tapestry, embroidery, all sorts of different things. Um, And then every year we've focused on some people like to just bring their own stuff and work away in what they're doing. But other people, often people who are avid crafters, do a lot of crafting and eventually their family or friends have enough scarves and hats and gloves and they just don't want any more. So you have to find a place to, to, to put those things. So we do a lot of charity work where we make stuff and we donate it to um, hospitals, social work departments, yeah, different things. We run a fair at Christmas um, where people can come and buy Christmas presents and um, and then we raise money for charity that way as well. So again, it ties into that whole idea of volunteering, generosity, giving um, and using your creative spirit as well. And it's all about well-being. And we have this lovely community. Sorry, Colin, we have a lovely community built up and everyone is welcome. I have seen your office and Matt, you really, it is it is worthwhile. I mean, Neve's office is just uh, an amalgamation of just what she was talking about earlier, that exchange between the first years and the final years. So she'll have like, when, I don't know if, if our, uh, uh, 
audience outside of Ireland and the UK will know what wellies are, but well, Wellington boots that you wear on a farm. So you'll have wellies and then you'll have all of this wool and you'll have these handcrafted materials. Uh, Katrina and Neve did uh, life drawing at one point. So you'll have some life drawing on the, the office wall. So it's, it's, you got to kind of navigate your way to, to find uh, Neve sometimes. And, uh, it's it certainly, I, I mean, I can only commend what you have done because you are absolutely at the heart of so many things on the UCD campus. I've seen that myself. But for listeners who maybe want to see some of the Pearl Jam creations, is there a way they can do that? Yes, there is. Um, surprise, surprise. We have a blog called UCD Pearl, P-U-R-L, Jam, J-A-M at uh, sorry dot wordpress.com so we blog about little bits and pieces that we're doing recently we've been making masks for nursing home staff for the pandemic during the pandemic and different things like that and also we, we recently joined instagram and uh Katrina and I are both not very good at social media so we only have four instagram posts at the moment but <laughs> bear with us we're getting there yeah yeah, but it's been it's a it's great. It's just this little oasis in the middle of the week. We meet on Wednesdays and we've continued to do it during the pandemic. We meet through Zoom. And tell us a little bit about the Values in Action Award. Yeah, so we were nominated for this um, because UCD has a certain number of uh, values by which the university, you know, lives, I suppose. And um, we would fall very much under a lot of those, like anything to do with community building and things like that. And that's really been our our main aim from the beginning is is community building, actually. So um, we were nominated for an award last year and we won an award and had a lovely dinner and um, got a beautiful certificate and things like that. So it was really nice, actually, to be recognised um, in the early days of Pearl Jam. People were sort of curious and didn't really know what it is. But now, actually, it's become a, a UCD thing. So people know we exist and they... Sometimes we, we meet in a classroom when we're on campus that's kind of glass glass at the front so people can see us. And I think they think, OK, there's the there are the guys just knitting weirdly in the middle of the university. <laughs> Who knows why? But they but they accept us as part of the community. So it's all good. Well, I'm following you now on Instagram uh, at UCD Pearl Jam. So uh, very nice picture so <laughs> far. So hopefully I'll post some more. And let's start sharing Pearl Jam. It's P-U-R-L jam um so not the not the band yes. but any relation to the band or not really i'm sure eddie vedder the lead singer of pearl jam would be so happy to know that we have uh, adopted his name apparently we think as well there, there's there's a, a group of rockers in sweden or something with the same name as us we didn't copy them <laughs> so we should beat someday they knit also apparently it's good. It's a thing. <laughs> you could you could be playing Pearl Jam in the background while you knitted. We could do. Yeah, we could. I'll bring that to the group. I'll be so happy. Leave <laughs> <laughs> this. I'm so glad that we had the opportunity to have you on, on the podcast. We had Ashton O'Grady on a few episodes back kind of outlining what the advisors do but I think to hear from somebody who is working within one of the schools directly about the work that they are undertaking about some of the barriers and obstacles that 
the students at UCD face and how you're helping to support them overcome the those barriers and also the community building work that you're doing both for staff and for students I I think there will be ideas for our listeners that they can take and bring back to to their institutions and tweak in in different ways because I don't think you know, none of us are, are, we're all, we're all borrowing ideas from other places and and bringing them to our own campus and seeing what might work for us. Yes, absolutely. Yeah, definitely. I think that's, that's, that's it really. So I'm always delighted when I hear about other ideas that people have done and figuring out how to make them work. People are so creative, actually. Well, this has definitely been fun. And I look forward to having you back on this podcast so we can chat some more. (laughs) But again, thank you so much for being on the podcast, taking time out of your day to join us to have this conversation. uh, Very enlightening. And I look forward to seeing you on again. Thanks, Matt. Thanks, Colin. Well, what a fun interview that was. And let's bring Neve back to talk more about Pearl Jam and her time in Poland. And plus, we can get an update of how her mechanics skills are going. But next up, we do have Martin John McAndrew from Trinity College Dublin. So we heard a little bit about this podcast episode, how it came about, and all thanks to Martin for that. And so here's our chat with him. All right, let's welcome our next guest, Martin John McAndrew, who is a postgraduate support officer at Trinity College Dublin. This role involves coordinating Trinity's postgraduate advisory service, encompassing direct student support, as well as working with other services and academics to enhance the postgraduate experience. He currently chairs an interdisciplinary working group developing collaborative and tailored responses to student feedback in Trinity. He formerly held posts in student counseling and the disability services and holds degrees from National University of Ireland and Trinity. He is a recipient of a provost award and honorary membership of Trinity's Graduate Students Union. Martin, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for having me. Delighted to have the opportunity to to chat to you and former colleagues at Trinity College, but I'm certainly very interested in hearing about your your current work and delving into that and particularly around supporting postgrad students as we say here and grad students as they they say in other places. But how are you faring in this COVID nineteen world? Um I think I think it's been a challenge. We're we're all working remotely still uh from home from from our kitchen tables in my case um i think we're doing reasonably well i I miss i miss interacting with students face to face uh and it's been kind of very apparent over the last couple of 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 months particularly just you know kind of the importance of that kind of community and building that on campus and how much that means particularly i think to postgraduate students you know we'll probably talk about it in a little while in terms of isolation Um, for them, I think primarily at the moment it's financial stuff and it's about wondering about the impact of, you know, the the, the pandemic and the lockdown on their academic work. Um, for me, I, I miss just sort of seeing my colleagues, but but things like this kind of help in terms of being able to, to Skype and to call and Zoom. There's a lot of Zooming in my life at the moment. Oh, yeah. Hasn't that become super popular? <laughs> at TCD, um, has the term already ended? Uh, it has, um, as have our assessments. So we're kind of in the marking period. So um, for many students, they're kind of holding their breath, waiting for the results. 
um, we, we had a, a, a kind of an exciting period sort of looking at how we were going to be able to deliver assessments online or remotely um, and kind of transforming some of those. Um, and it's, it's worked out quite well. I think students have been fairly happy with that. Um, but we're, I, the proof is, is, is in, the, in, in the eating. Um, and within the next couple of weeks, we should know how everyone is doing. And Martin, maybe for listeners who aren't as familiar uh, with you as I am, how did you, I suppose, come to be in in your current role? What was the the route into that? Um, it's kind of interesting um, because in working with postgrads um, and and kind of it, it 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 tends to be where where my passion lies is actually with 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 research students particularly. Um, I, I kind of found that way through my own kind of research journey. So I, I came to Trinity initially to do a master's in modern Irish history, which went you know, reasonably well. It was kind of my academic fresh start. And I had all of these plans for going on to do research myself, to do a doctorate um, and to kind of follow that path, my merry way into, into academia. But it was the height of, of the recession. The, it was 2010. And realistically, you know, funding for, for history PhDs and, and jobs afterwards weren't, or were fairly thin on the ground. Um, and toward the end of that year, it was a one-year master's, um, I had this opportunity to, to run for um, the vice president of Trinity's Graduate Students' Union. Um, and the VP of, of, of Trinity's GSU is a welfare and education officer. So there's a lot of support work. It's kind of a students helping students type of role. Um, and, and it was just an opportunity. A friend of mine was, was, was looking, she was running for president and she said, I think you might be good for this. Um, and I kind of, I, I got the bug, you know, I got bitten by the bug. It, it, it became something that I was really passionate about. Um, it does sound terribly corny but I love universities. I think universities are just the most fantastic invention. And I think research and discovering new things is so wonderful. Um, and to be part of that in any way is a great privilege, I think. Um, and being able to kind of help research students, you know, with their own journeys through becoming academics and, you know, their own contributions to knowledge kind of became something that I was really really interested in. So I was determined to kind of stay in that area. I was there for two years and then worked um, in, in, in the student counselling service on our um, peer mentoring and, and peer support programmes um, and then did a spell uh, in the disability service in Trinity as well before I, I was able to kind of come back to my, my first love, which is postgraduate support. So that's me. And so let's let's go back to running for vice president of graduate mm-hmm. the graduate students union. So this is uh, from sure. 2012, and so we're talking before we were recording that we found your blog spot of you uh, answering some questions about why you felt the need to run and what you were you know, hoping to accomplish um, in that in that role. And just to confirm, you you did win the vice president role, right? <laughs> I did. Okay. Yes, I did. Nice. Uh, admitted, admittedly, I was unopposed. Oh, uh, for okay. full disclosure, I have to, to let people know that. Because I was going to feel like a jerk if, if I brought it up and then you <laughs> didn't win. And then I'd be like, oh, OK, we'll move on to the next topic. But um, <laughs> in the blog post that you had, uh, one of the things that you put in there, and, and I'll quote it from here, you said, as a postgrad, you play an important part in college life. And together we are the tutors, we're the lab demonstrators, the essay graders and the teaching assistants that make this university function. Not to mention that we are the academic future of the disciplines in which we research. And then you go on to say uh, postgraduate life can be isolating. Uh, We work primarily on our own 
and the social aspect of undergraduate life, given our workload and the nature of our study, is unknown to many of us. Can you talk more about that? Like, what kind of like what made you uh, run for that? Um, talk more about the, the the like the isolation portion of it, and you know, maybe even kind of some of the differences between mm-hmm. undergrad and graduate life. Sure. Well, I'm supposed to 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 come to it from from the differences first of all between undergrad and postgrad. You know, we're, we're kind of fairly conscious in some ways that you know graduate study tends to be different. It tends to be more independent and more self directed. Um, the way I talk about it um, when I'm introducing it at orientation or, you know, when I'm explaining it to, to, to other people is, you know, the how, the what and the why of learning at postgraduate level tend to be a little bit different. You know, it tends to be much more um, independent, as we said, but much more sort of self-disciplined as well. And, and you know, the reasons why people would apply to do a master's or a, or a doctorate um, tend to be much more focused. It's not simply, you know, that it's the next, you know, step on the path towards employment. There tends to be a specific reason why you're choosing this particular course, whether it's to go and do further study or whether it's kind of a passion-based thing or a practicality, you know, there's, I need this qualification to get to the next step in the career that I've chosen for myself. Um, but with all of that comes sort of, the other side of it, you know, the, 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 the opposite side of independent and self-directed is, is lonely and isolating in some ways. Um, and it's about, particularly for me, I think when I was running for that post, um, it's hopefully somewhere in that manifesto, it was about trying to create community and it's about trying to kind of break down those barriers and get people out of carols and um, out of their libraries and their archives or their laboratories. Um, I hope I did achieve some of that. I, I feel like we did, we did okay. Um, but that was the main motivating factor. And it was it was coming from my own experience as well. I had arrived in Dublin. I didn't really know that many people. Um, it was my first time studying, uh, you know, away from the west of Ireland, where I'm from, um, and kind of trying to to map that experience on to, to a general postgraduate, um, a postgraduate life and trying to mitigate some of that. Martin, I suppose one of the things that I think is really interesting about the GSU, the Graduate Students' Union at Trinity, is Mm -hmm. I I studied at UCC, I worked at CIT, I worked at Trinity, I worked at UCD and now at DCU. And as far as I know, the GSU is the only standalone graduate student union in Ireland. I mean, the other, we usually have students unions and they have a graduate officer, but the the GSU is its own separate institution. And I, I have felt that that kind of gives graduate students much more of an identity and much more of, of a sense of community because the distinction is obvious as soon as you come onto campus and the GSU are advocating for postgraduate students and, and their needs. I suppose ha- having been in the position that, that you were in, I, I would be interested in hearing maybe... Did did you work hand in hand with the um the the other students' union the the, the uh, who usually in most cases would be representative of the entire student body, but a trinity a representative of more so the undergrads? Or what was that relationship like? Um, it was we did we worked very closely. We we worked in the same building, um, and we were all friends because we were all on this kind of uh, sabbatical journey together. You know, finding our feet. Um, and finding out how to behave at committees and meetings and, you know, how to prepare for those. Um, we worked quite well together. I, I, I don't know that you necessarily need a separate union, but I do think that you, 
we do need uh, distinct structures for postgraduate students. In Trinity, we have a partnership agreement with our students' unions. So on all of the committees and all of the decision-making bodies in the university, there's always at least one undergrad and one postgrad um, because, we represent, because we recognize that there are different perspectives and different experiences to bring. And I'm really, you know, I, 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 will, I will, this is one of the hills that I, I, I'll expire on is, is talking about, you know, the fact that postgraduates need to be represented by people who have their own, um, who have that experience. There's a shared experience there, you know. Um, it doesn't make one different or better than the other, but they are different. I, I think an example that we had from back in the day was, um, what would we do with a surplus budget in the library? during those kind of really constrained recessionary times. And our undergraduate colleagues were very keen on Sunday opening hours. Um, and our constituents, the research students, were telling us that if you have any extra money, it should be more subscriptions to more of those esoteric journals. You know, we need to increase the library collection. Um, and those kinds of nuances between those perspectives tends to get lost, you know, in, in, you know if, if we're not able to hear both sets of voices. Um, because they, they do have different priorities, I think. So the office that you work in, it's called Senior Tutor Services? Yep, that's correct. And so within your office, it uh, looks like there's, you know, they have senior tutor, there's the undergraduate student support officer, postgraduate student support officer, executive officer. Can you give us an overview of sorts of what your office does, but also maybe a little bit about each member of the team, what, what everyone's responsible for? Sure. So we're a tiny little team, but we're 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 really close knit. Um, what's you? One of the things I suppose what I do is born out of a more ancient kind of uh, support structure in Trinity, which we call the tutorial system. So every undergraduate is given um, is put into a group called a chamber, and they're assigned a member of the academic staff who is responsible for, throughout their undergraduate journey for looking after their well-being, for checking in on them. They're a kind of a point of contact for students. So it's, 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 it's kind of an advisor role. Um, and that has existed since the 18th century, I think, and it continues to go. And it's one of our, the things that we're really proud of in Trinity. Um, about just over 10 years ago, so 11 years ago, actually, we celebrated our anniversary last year. Um, there was a review of the service, and the one thing that kind of came out of that really strongly was that this should be extended. This is unique. This is historic. This is really good. Um, the students really like it. Postgrads should have something like this. Um, so the postgraduate element of that was kind of born. Um, it's 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 opt in uh, rather than opt out. So it's not an automatic assigning of a chamber as it would be at undergraduate level. Postgrads let me know if they need support, and I can either meet them myself or refer them on uh, to an academic. Um, I work really closely. So we, I report with the se to the senior tutor, who's an academic. He's a member of staff. He's elected by the other tutors, and he has, he's, he's elected from the tutor, tutors himself. Um, and myself and Helen, the undergraduate support officer, our role is to support him, to advise him on the things that we're seeing in terms of our casework, in terms of the things the students are talking to us about, um, and then kind of generally to meet students one-to-one to talk about financial assistance, which is a big part of our job, um, to kind of steer them in the direction of, you know, the various regulations, the various options that they have. Um, and we have a, a wonderful executive officer as well, Caroline, who who is kind of the front face, the person who kind of looks after the students when they come in and sort of points them in the right direction. You should see the senior tutor or you need to see me, um, that kind of thing. And I think it's, it's a really interesting system because, again, having 
been involved with it and I I don't know if I'm remembering this correctly but from what I remember at orientation and Aiden who's the this um senior tutor Aiden Siri he was spoke about how when Trinity was founded uh 400 plus years ago um the senior tutor uh the role of the senior tutor and the provost were the first two roles so the role of the senior tutor has been there since the university was enshrined and it's been enshrined ever since and I think that you know that that level of, of support and and guiding students along the the journey is is really important so Martin I, I know when we kind of first were discussing having you come on the the podcast you talked a little bit uh to me about um preventative space um and and maybe you could talk to us a little bit more about about that idea and, and what it means to you and, and how you've been looking to bring it into your work. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah, it's, it's, it's kind of my, it's, it's, it's my big passion, I think. Um, inoculation is, is always better or pre- uh, preferable to cure. And that's kind of how I approach things. So if we can um, preempt student needs, kind of give them some of the tools to to recognize some some of the issues or to kind of anticipate some of the things that might be coming uh, down the line. We can, essentially, we can mitigate suffering, you know. Um, we don't need to, to, to kind of have those more complex interventions later on. You know, one of the things that I see often, um, I see students who are in great deal of distress, have a problem, they've been sitting with that kind of concern or query for, for months at a, you know, for months at this stage before they finally reached out. Um, and it takes a lot of sort of meetings and uh, effort to kind of help the student unpick some of those queries or concerns. Whereas six months earlier, a couple of phone calls and an email would have done the same thing if we had just kind of empowered the student or you know equipped them with some of the tools. So the preventative space for me is really about that. And it's it's important from a humanitarian perspective, as I said, you know, from the from the point of view of kind of preempting and you know preventing suffering wherever we can. But I am also, um, I suppose, professionally, I'm a child of the recession that I talked about already. Um, and I think there's a resource side of things too there. You know, um, if I can get 20 students into a room to talk about supervisors at the start of the academic year um, and have them go away with some more information and to feel a little bit more in control, that might in the long run save me 20 hour-long meetings later in the year. And that means that that frees me up to talk about other things with other students and there isn't a, a waiting list or a queue to see me in the same way. And I think that's the principle that we kind of have to think about um, in, in universities. And now again, um, going back into kind of, you know, restrained or resource kind of compromised times with the pandemic, uh, I think that kind of thing becomes more important as well. So it's about looking at um, what you do in your one-to-one meetings. How often does that happen? How, how often does that issue come up? And whether there's something that you can do earlier on in the student life cycle to kind of help students to avoid that problem or that pitfall again. Well, I guess going into that um, with the last few months in terms of the, the pandemic, things being virtual, um, mm-hmm. you know, seeing, you know, meeting with students through Zoom or Skype, what have been some of the, the student barriers that, and concerns that your students have had that, that you've met with? And with that, um, have there been any resources or things that uh, TCD has been able to do to to help with that? Yeah, so um, we, we, we have some really wonderful people on, on in the college who are much better than I am at social media. 
Um, and I think social media is is really where it's at, and it's 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 something I have to become less of a philistine about, to be perfectly honest. Um, you know, thinking about various resources that you can tweet. You know, let, let's think of something that that I've been sending to students recently. Um, preparing for your meeting with your what we call a supervisor uh, in North America, their advisors, um, to talk about your PhD. Um, how do you structure your agenda? Do you structure? Do you do an agenda? Do you send one in advance? Many students don't. Um, so you know, just sending something like that out, or even just letting people know. You know, um, my colleagues in the learning development team uh, had a daily half-hour kind of check-in workshop. You know, talking about time management or stress management or you know procrastination. Um, and it's it, it's about trying to kind of create an online community. Um, and some of my colleagues have been really, really wonderful at that in counselling, in health promotion and learning development, um, in just sort of creating a, a regular place for students to check in and um, to just kind of feel like they're part of something and feel like the university is still reaching out to them, even though physically they can't be part of a part of that at the moment. Um, Martin, one of the things Matt mentioned in your bio at the start was that you are chairing um, the interdisciplinary working group. Um, could you talk a little bit more about what you're looking at, I suppose, in that working group? Sure. Um, we're quite fortunate, I suppose, in that the students have done some of the work for us there. We have nationally in Ireland um, a national student survey um, for one for taught students. And more recently, they've, they've, they've begun running a separate one for research students. And that's that allows you to kind of get a snapshot nationally of what the issues are. You can compare those, some of those at least internationally, to how see how Ireland is doing. But when you get your institution's data, you're also able to see how you know what our students are thinking of us and how we're comparing to the to to the national picture. So the working group was established by the dean of students, Kevin O'Kelly. Um, as a subgroup of the larger student life committee, which reports to it, to the university council. Um, and we have representatives there from, um, I, I chair from the postgraduate advisory service, but we have counseling, learning development, global relations, the library. We have a student from the graduate students union, the VP sits there. Um, uh, we have someone from the Dean of graduate studies office there as well. So what we're trying to do is, is, is come up with responses to that data um, that are, tailored to postgraduate needs you know and empirically based so the students have told us that this is what they need or they've highlighted these as problems um and also just trying to kind of be collaborative about it and always be preventative as well so tcp tends to be the thing that i talk about sometimes tailored um collaborative and preventative um, that's that's kind of our motto so one of the things for example that we, we we did that kind of came out of that was around supervision workshops uh, that i've talked about um 43 of my casework one-to-one with students two years ago was about supervisors the advisor relationship and how to structure that and anxieties and the most common questions were you know is this normal what should i be expected to do you know, how much autonomy do I have? How much control do they have? That kind of thing. Um, so we tried to kind of develop a workshop that would work for them, this, as an example, um, kind of giving them some of the tools to kind of empower them, letting them know what their rights are, as well as their responsibilities, and vice versa as well, in terms of, of the what the academic has to do. Um, and it's a little early in the day, but we did notice when we started um, offering those workshops, 
as part of orientation and then, you know, individually to schools on request, that those one-to-one meetings dropped from 43% quite significantly, I think, um, to just under 30% within a year. Um, And they've reduced further. I think they're closer to 20% now. Um, That hasn't meant that there are fewer meetings uh, you know the, the space has been filled by other things um, and of course you know supervision and advisors will always be a part of my job um, but those kinds of earlier questions that as I say the things about is this normal what should I expect now what can I do those kinds of questions have become less um, prevalent for me and when people are coming to talk to me they're coming now having exhausted those options that we've covered earlier on and it's kind of going into a more detailed intervention but there are things, you know, my colleagues are doing all the time. My, the counselling service um, has been offering sort of interpersonal relationship uh, support um, and support groups for supervisors, you know, helping them to contract the relationship or to mend it when it's broken or to fix communication and to think about ha- ways of doing that from the academic side of things. And it's been wonderful to be able to kind of draw on um, on the wonderful expertise of psychotherapists and psychologists and being able to do that. And, and the seeing the willingness of academics to actually take that on board as well and to take part is, is really heartening. And as we look to the upcoming term, uh, has TCD made the decision in terms of what's going to be happening, what we call our fall semester? Is it Will it be online, virtual, is it back on campus with social distancing measures? Mm-hmm. We're, we're, we're going uh, with a hybrid model. So I think it's it's really important to us that students are safe um, and that, you know, we're able to, to reach them um, wherever they are. Uh, and particularly sort of thinking about we don't know how long, you know, the pandemic or the virus is going to be with us. And we don't know whether we might have to at some point in the future go back into a lockdown or a semi-lockdown again. Um, so we've moved a lot of our, our activity online, but it's it's equally important for, for many universities, but particularly for us in Trinity, um, that we have the option of having that campus, that face-to-face experience. We have, our, our, as Colm said, our, our, our university is, is, is very old, 1592. It was established by Queen Elizabeth I. Um, and there's something important and magical about being part of those or being on that front square, or being able to walk around and see those historic buildings and feel a sense of belonging and ownership of that. So where we can, we will also be running um, classes in small groups on campus still face-to-face and that important interactive element with the, with each other and you know between staff and students and between students themselves is really important as well. So what we're calling it is hybrid. Martin, I suppose one of the things working with post-grad students and particularly post-grad research students is it's a very diverse cohort and it's a very international cohort. And I'm wondering, do you see that the international students, are there particular challenges or barriers that those students face? I think there are. Um, I think I think we do see that quite a bit. Um, certainly in my work, uh, just under 60% of the people who come for a one-to-one appointment with me um, would identify as international in some way, whether that means European Union or, you know, further afield. Um I think the main thing, particularly for 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 postgraduate students, is the the culture shock that comes with with moving to a new country. Sure, but then there's a, a sort of a second layer, which is that academic culture shock that we sometimes talk about. You know what we talk about in terms of plagiarism in in an Irish context or in a Trinity context or in a, a research led um, 
context might mean something different to what people have experienced before. That's not necessarily an entirely international thing. I think every university has its own culture and its own kind of academic uh, milieu, if you like. Um, but certainly that's one of the things that I see a lot. And when you think particularly of a, a one-year master's student, they, they hit the ground running. You know, they, they've only got 12, 12 months to actually uh, to, to get that degree. Um, if they've arrived a couple of weeks earlier or even a few days earlier, they, they essentially walk straight off the plane and onto on, into a classroom. And there can be a lot of pressure with that. And I think we have to be really sensitive about how we communicate those expectations and kind of how we, we help guide students through that as well. And so you talk about history, you talk about culture. You've also written some articles and presented. Um, so like you had one called Let Us In, A Defense of the Irish General History. You've had one revisiting the Courts of Justice Act. You've presented on judges' robes and the Irish Free State and why that matters. Has history been um, an interest? And in, uh, like, are you history buff? And where, where, where did this uh, develop from? Uh, yeah, no, I am. I, I have to say it, it seems to run in my family, actually, as well. My, my dad, my, my grandfather's on both sides, also history buffs. Um, and, and certainly it kind of feeds into to, to what I do working in an institution, you know, crossing the same cobbles as Samuel Beckett or, you know, Oscar Wilde um, sat in the same dining hall that I sit in and have my lunch in. Like, you know, it, it does kind of give you, you know, a slight additional sort of boost of energy, particularly on the grey Dublin mornings. Um, yeah, history is, is really important. I think context is, is, is really key. And I think I probably still take that with me into my work day to day. It's it's what is the context? What is leading? Uh, what what is a student bringing into the room with me? You know, what in the past has kind of helped to influence this particular conversation that we're having now? Um, it it makes me kind of reflective as well, I guess, in terms of my own context um, and what I'm bringing and what my own personal history is and what that means. Um, but definitely, um, I I don't know that I could. You know, I I I. I and as I said, I love universities. I think they're wonderful. Um, but it does help being sort of associated even in a, in a minor way with, with something that's quite ancient. And Martin, I suppose um, there are a couple of uh, things that um, I'm, I'm interested in. But one of them is we mentioned in your bio that you won a Provost Award. And I suppose for, for listeners, um, it might be worthwhile for you to explain what the, the position of the provost at Trinity, because I think for a lot of listeners, a provost at their institution might be something different. But could you tell us, after telling us what the provost at Trinity is, could you tell us a little bit about the award that you won? Oh, this is, you're, you're making me blush. Um, I'm really glad that this is audio only. Um, I lied. We're actually recording the video too. No, I'm just playing. <laughs> Great. <laughs> wonderful. Everyone can see my fridge. Um, so in, in Trinity, the provost, um, the provost is quite an old term. And, and you know, in, in early modern universities, that was as high as it got, you know. And and uh, our, our provost, Provost Prendergast, is the provost and president, essentially. And he's the equivalent of a, of a rector or a president or a vice chancellor uh, in other universities. Um, we, we haven't changed the term. Um, so he's the, he's the head of, of the whole institution. Um, the the what they're called are the Provost Professional Staff Awards. Um, he hosts he hosts a lot of awards for for academics and things. And um, the ones for those who work in services, who work in student services, or work in you know maintaining the campus or the estate, or who are working in administration. 
I was really, really fortunate, um, and I am blushing quite terribly, um, that my my colleagues in the counselling service nominated me. I work really closely with them. There's a lot of back and forth referrals, um, a lot of people that they see. They think that I should I should have a chat with about their academics um, and vice versa. Um, and I was really, really um, flattered that, that they nominated me. Um, and that uh, eventually a panel of people decided I was I was one of the people who would who would win. Um, it was it was the greatest honor and the greatest thrill I have to say, um, and and really wonderful. And when you look at the other people who who were nominated, uh, health promotion officers and people who have worked for many years in the university, doing really wonderful things, um, it 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 felt quite quite special um, and. E- equally embarrassing then as it is now talking about it to be honest oh well deserved what what year what year was the award uh, did you win the award uh last year uh oh, just recent. Yeah. nice yeah. yeah very very fortunate so you and column know each other so not to put you both on the spot but kind of to put you both on yeah. the spot first impressions of one another Ooh. um I don't know if you remember this, Colm. I remember specifically when I when I met you. You were working in uh, Trinity's academic registry, and we met at a training on intercultural competence and support for for students. Um, we were sitting next to each other, and we had to do some of the the little ice icebreaker things together. And I just I thought you were just a really nice guy. Um, to be perfectly honest, you were super friendly. Um, and really pro student, I have to say. Even even back then, that was really obvious that you know you were here for the students. Um, I don't know if you remember that though. Do you? I do because it was really interesting. <laughs> I mean, there was so much about that because the person who gave the training, uh, Louise mm-hmm. Daunton, ended up becoming yeah. my boss eventually at, at Trinity when I had moved into the role of kind of international student liaison <laughs> officer. So I do remember right. you at that training. Um, and there were other people, I suppose, at that training that I got to know. Declan Coogan, I remember, was at that training. Mm-hmm. It was, yeah, I remember the in the interactions and the the games, uh, I some the icebreaker games and things like that. But Martin has been involved, and I think this is something that. It, it, it's with Martin and I think Irish people in general, Matt, you, you almost have to confront them with praise. Irish people tend to run as far away as they possibly can. So Martin has been involved in student life in Trinity on so many different levels. And I have gotten to know various GSU presidents and vice presidents, and they have always gone to Martin for advice when they move <laughs> into the role and Martin is just an absolute fountain of knowledge on how college, as Trinity is referred to, how college works. And I can tell you that when an institution is 430 years old, it has many unique ways of going about things. And very often you need a guide to navigate those corridors and to, to provide perhaps a, a torch in the darkness. You might be able to stumble and find your way, but it's much easier if you have somebody to, to guide you. And everyone I have spoken to in Trinity has said that Martin has been incredibly helpful to them. So he's one of the, the people I definitely miss working with now that I'm no longer at Trinity. And I'm 
really glad that we had the opportunity to bring him onto the podcast. And I think he's blushing again. I, uh, yes, I mean, I, I can't, I can't feel my fingers anymore. <laughs> there, there's no circulation there. Um, but thank you. Now, what Colm isn't saying is that there have been plenty of times where he's he passed me on one of the squares in Trinity, and I'm walking around with a, you know, a metaphorical but almost literal thundercloud over my head. Um, because I was just having a grumpy day. Um, so thank you for skating over that. But I, I would be remiss not to to, 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 to to give the impression that I'm always in a good mood. I think one of the things that we might need to revisit on a future episode is the, and I know you worked in this area, you mentioned at the start, is the, the peer mentor scheme um and, and something matt that we may we may look mm-hmm. to at some point we we talked about it previously with neve and i suppose that that student supporting students community and i know that's one of the things that's really strong at mm-hmm. trinity and martin did you find that kind of gave you a grounding because i suppose s2s a student to student as it's referred to as trinity is kind of involved in so many different aspects of college, right? Sure, um, and and they're amazing. Um, that was my apprenticeship in a lot of ways. Um, the S2S program, I, I, it's probably changed since I've since I've left, but um, by and large, what it's about is having other undergraduate students on day one meet first years and give them tours of campus and give them that lived experience in terms of the tips and the hints and the little tricks that you need to do to navigate a university. But as Colin has said, you know, a university college, as we call it, um, uh, that is so labyrinthine and so complex because historic organizations always are, you know, they they build layers like sediment on top of each other. Um, And having that student perspective and being able to be guided by another student is really, really uh, important and wonderful. And I think it's it's one of the crucial barriers, um, be, or the, the, the crucial elimination of a barrier, um, having another a, a peer, a colleague um, to actually talk to. We, we do it all the time when we move into a new office or when we're you know, starting a new job. We, the person at the desk next to us, we kind of ask, you know, how do you plug in this, you know, or how does my computer work? Um, we shouldn't we shouldn't be surprised the students would would respond to having that same kind of uh, support. I think it's wonderful. The S2S team are incredible. Student to student are just really wonderful. I think they're an example of really good practice. And I say that as someone who who used to work there. Well, I found this interview very beneficial. I learned a lot, and I think a lot of listeners as well can take a lot of what you said and and hopefully apply it to to their institutions, their work. But it's been a pleasure uh, talking to you, Martin, and I definitely hope that we can have you on on a future podcast episode and really loving the mustache there. Thank you. I'm jealous because I cannot grow a beard for the life of me. <laughs> it's my proudest achievement. Provost Awards <laughs> have nothing on my mustache. Thank you very much. Um, thank you for having me. It's been wonderful. I really had a great time. Thank you. So thanks again to to Martin for the idea on the podcast and for taking the time to chat to us. It was great for me to, I suppose, reminisce about my my time in Trinity and hear about what Martin is up to. And you can hear the the level of support that is available to postgraduate students at Trinity. And hopefully between the three interviews today, it's provided people with some ideas on 
different approaches and I'm sure there are lots of other ideas out there as well. Now, Matt, in the last episode, we had spoken to Leanne McDonough and I mentioned that, you know, I couldn't believe that, say, in in 2020, Leanne had spoken to a 12-year-old traveler girl and, and talked about she didn't think you know, that she'd be able to, to be a teacher. And we we were saying that, you know, we, we seem to be talking about this and we, we hope for change every year, but it kind of keeps perpetuating itself. But in just a couple of weeks since our last episode come out, there have been some really positive changes. I just wanted to mention that we have our first traveler Shannon member. So the Shannon is our upper house of parliament in Ireland. And Eileen Flynn uh, is our first female traveller senator. So delighted to see that. And also the week just passed was Traveller Pride Week. And that seems to have gone really well with a, a lot of outreach and interaction and people getting involved. So really wonderful couple of weeks there. So delighted to to see that and hopefully that will will you know continue. But positive change and definitely delighted with that. And another, I suppose, piece of good news, and I just wanted to give a shout out to Sumi, who reached out to me on Twitter, and she was previously just familiar with the stuff around Broncos Europe, but she saw that I had tweeted the, the link to our last episode, and she said that she really enjoyed our enthusiasm and cheerful countenance. And she was really moved by Leanne's story and she wanted to wish us continued good luck. So thank you very much, Sumi. We really appreciate you reaching out to us and letting us know that you enjoyed the episode. Thank you so much, Sumi. That's really kind and definitely keep keep listening. Hopefully enjoy more of these episodes. And well, I think that we made it to the end of another episode of Adventures in Advising. And thanks for being with us on this continued journey around the world in academic advising. And shout out to our wonderful guests today, Jamie Reynolds-Heck, Neve Nestor, and Martin John McAndrew. And don't forget to subscribe to our podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and any podcast platforms that you enjoy. Also, make sure to follow us on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter at Advising Podcast. And of course, once you finish listening to this episode, go check out some of our previous episodes. We got a lot of them now. 14 other ones in addition to this one. And we'll catch you next time. Bye for now. Don't want a complication, complication.